Today we are talking with Dr. Rosinski. So just a little bit about Dr. Rosinski. He is a professor of literacy education at Kent University, Kent State University, sorry, and director of its award-winning winning reading clinic. He has written over 200 articles and has authored, co-authored, or edited over 50 books or curriculum programs on reading education. He's published numerous best-selling books with teacher-created materials and shell education, and has also authored books for Scholastic. He's, uh, his scholarly interests include reading fluency and word study, reading in elementary and middle gra grades, and readers who struggle. His research on reading has been cited by the National Reading Panel and has been published in journals such as Reading Research Quarterly, The Reading Teacher, Reading Psychology, and the Journal of Educational Research. Dr. Rosinski is the first author of the fluency chapter for the Handbook of Reading Research, and he has served a three-year term on the Board of Directors of the International Reading Association and was a co-editor of the Reading Teacher, the world's most widely read reading journal of literacy education. The most widely read <laughs> journal of literacy education. And he's also served as a co-editor of the Journal of Literacy Research. And Dr. Rosinski is the past president of the College Reading Association. He's uh, has won the A. B. Her and the Laureate Awards from College Reading Association for his scholarly contributions to literacy education. In 2010, he was elected to the International Reading Hall of Fame. Wow, I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> yeah, just all you have to do is Google it. You'll you'll find it. That's great. Yeah. Um, to prior to coming to Kent State, Dr. Rosinski taught literacy education at the University of Georgia. He taught for several years as an elementary and middle school classroom and Title I teacher in Nebraska, and he is a veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces. Thank you for, our, for your service. Thank you. So his professional development areas and expertise include working with struggling readers, developing uh, foundational reading skills in young readers, effective teaching of phonics and word study, and teaching fluency neglected but necessary goal of the reading curriculum. So I will tell you that sort of what drove me to your name is because I'm always, I, I'm, everybody knows me that I'm just like really crazy about CBMs and I mm -hmm. think we should include them in our evaluation reports rather than just, you know, the typical published norm, norm reference commercialized tests. Not that CBMs aren't norm reference, but they often are, but, you know, just not those typical commercialized tests also include the ongoing CBMs in there, even if CBMs aren't being done in the school, because I feel like it's our job to drive instruction, and that is just setting an example of what should be done. So I agree wholeheartedly with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what drove me to your name and looking into your 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 research and everything is you know, when you go anywhere online, like if I go to Reading Rockets or Spelling City or whatever, they have like your research of your, your reading fluency. So I was just kind of curious, so what drove you to researching reading fluency and ultimately developing this idea of the art of the science right. of teaching reading? Because you argue that reading fluency continues to be like a neglected and misunderstood reading competency. 
Right. So, well, that's. Uh... Let me unpack that uh, little by little, uh, Nazi. What got me into reading fluency? Well, um, back in the day, I was a teacher, uh, an interventionist, actually, in elementary school, working with kids who were, of course, having difficulty in reading. And it occurred, I would just notice that, you know, there were these kids who could decode words accurately, but it was it was it was just painful to listen to them read because it was word by word there was no enthusiasm in their reading there was no expression you know they were just trying to go from point a to point b then i happened to be working on my master's degree at the time and the professors that i had had us reading some of these articles that were just beginning to appear on reading fluency one was called the Method of Repeated Readings by Dr. J. Samuels. I, it's considered a classic now. I think it was 1979. You can see how old I am with that. Another one by Carol Chomsky, who's the wife of the uh, famous linguist Noam Chomsky. She, she wrote a piece, After Decoding, Then What? And it was her own work with children in an intervention setting. She taught them phonics, decoding, and they were pretty good at it, but they still weren't making any progress. And course the uh hence the title then what do i do and her answer was let's work on reading fluency with kids so that that was basically the impetus i start beginning i using some of these methods that they were talking about for example repeated readings and assisted reading where children would read and listen to a pre-recorded text at the same time and i found that these children previously were not making any progress began to really accelerate quite a bit. And so, you know, that convinced me this must be something to, you know, you want to explore a little bit more, more deeply. And well, that's been over 40 years now, my dissertation study at Ohio State was on reading fluency, one of the first ones that really took a systematic look at uh, fluency, I actually created a uh, theoretical model of fluency and tested, you know, against the data that I collected and found that the model was a pretty good fit to uh, a, a pretty good prediction of of, of how well these ch children read. So, you know, that, that was it. Now you ask the next question. Well, let me talk about this idea. I, I often talk about it, fluency being neglected. And I, and I, and, and I think it still is. I did a study with some colleagues a few couple years ago where we uh, surveyed primary grade teachers around the country and we asked them to just tell us how much time did he devote to you know those five pillars of instruction you know phonemic awareness phonics fluency vocabulary and uh, comprehension and what we found was that uh, reading fluency was largely ignored less than half the amount of time well uh, more than twice as amount of time was given over to phonics than to reading fluency uh, and that was just a couple years ago so you know, I think it's it's it is it, still you know um, a bit neglected, and I think part of the reason is the way fluency is often thought of. Number one, it's we often think, well, it's all about oral reading, right? Uh, kids reading with expression and so on, and indeed it is. But it also, you know, the way we read orally reflects the way we read silently. So, there, you know, there's that connection there. Uh, we often think of fluency as something for younger students. Um, that's when you develop it, you know, during those, that's the same stage that uh, phonics is being developed. And, uh, but it's not, you know, we, we have found that fluency continues to be a, 
a, a challenge for students even into high school. We've done some some work there. And another another uh, common misconception, it's all about reading fast. And we know that, you know, from the, uh, you know, the oral reading fluency, CBMs, you know, we measure fluency by speed of reading. Uh, and it's really a good measure. I have no, no problem with that. But what happens is that often gets flipped into, well, that's the way we develop fluency. We do these timed readings and we try to encourage kids to read faster than the day before. And of course, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, that's not a very authentic approach to teaching reading at, at all. And so I, those are some of the reasons why I think fluency has sort of been neglected, uh, misunderstood. And, and another one has been just in the last three or four years, uh, all this emphasis on, on phonics. If, if you've been following the work of the uh, educational journalist, uh, Emily Hanford, she, uh, she started writing about this four or five years ago, why kids aren't being taught to read. And her answer was a lack of systematic phonics instruction. And again, I, I'm not disagreeing with her on that, but when phonics takes up all the oxygen in the classroom, then, you know, there's little left for, for fluency instruction. So it continues to be uh, a challenge to get into the classroom. And one way of bringing in into the classroom is what I've been writing about with my colleagues called the art, as well as the science of teaching or re reading. You know, one of the things I've observed, and I'm sure many of the listeners out there have seen the same thing is, you know, <laughs> I might start by saying school's not fun anymore for kids. I re I love school, and most people my age did as well. Uh, but why why isn't it now? Well, you know, we have these I think overly scripted curriculum, reading curriculum where teachers aren't given a chance to kind of use their own artistic uh, muse to create instruction that is not only scientific but you know, engaging in artistic, we have, I remember seeing kids read word lists, you know, spending, you know, 10 minutes a day reading word lists over and over again. And I just thought to me, you know, this kind of instruction, yeah, there, there might be some value to it, but are we just killing kids interest in reading and doing so? As, as, and the challenge that I pose to myself and my colleagues is, is there a way to teach these the, these competencies in, in in ways that are artful as well as scientific. For example, very quick uh, example of that would be um, in reading fluency, we talk about repeated reading. And I mentioned to you how that often got turned into these timed readings where, you know, the, the teacher would get out a stopwatch and have kids read for a minute. Well, it thought it occurred to me, you know, repeated readings, another name for repeated readings is rehearsal. Right when you practice something to the point where you can read it well, and it, it dawned on me, you know, why not use that as sort of our mantra for teaching uh, repeated readings? Rehearsal. If you're going to rehearse something, you've got to practice it not only to read it with you know automaticity, but also to read it with uh, expression, which is the other part of fluency. And of course, that led to the next question, are there certain kinds of texts that are meant to be performed? That led me and others to think of, well, how about things like reader's theater scripts? How about poetry? How about song lyrics for, for that matter? How about rhetoric, speeches from American history? And these are the kinds of texts that often have been neglected right now. It seems like narrative and informational texts dominate the scene and rightly so, but why not bring in these texts as well? And we've been using these kinds of texts in our reading clinic here at the university 
the idea of children practicing a poem, eventually performing it. And it can be done in a matter of you know, 45 minutes or so. And we've gotten some really r remarkable results in terms of children not only developing in terms of their, their fluent reading, but also word recognition, co even comprehension has developed. And, and perhaps even most important would be uh, you know, their motivation for, for reading. Kids who come into a reading clinic, and I'm sure you, you know, you, all, all the listeners out there, you, you've seen that. They often come in defeated. You know, they don't have that sense of joy that we want them to have about reading. But when we can allow them to be successful in this sort of artistic way of approaching it, you know, we're, we're, we're covering the science, but at the same time, we're doing it in an authentic way that, you know, I would argue would be more artistic. So that's sort of my, my take on that. We could keep talking about that if you want. I, I love chatting about this, but uh, I know you have a whole bunch of other questions too. Sure. Okay. No, I, I mean, some of the things that I was thinking about when you were saying that is you know, making your comments, which, first of all, I didn't know that Noam Chomsky's wife was a reading person. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I love Noam Chomsky. I've been trying to tell people, like, we need to read Noam Chomsky because people oh. are always arguing about, you Language. know, how, how we can show that, you know, what things should we measure to show the sort of innate development of mm -hmm. you know a, a child and and i'm like you gotta read noam chomsky you know right and, and, you know, he's like from a whole nother field of linguist professor yeah no uh, she was an noam worked at uh, mit in boston and she was an intervention uh specialist in in the boston schools uh mm -hmm. there and it really is it's a, it's considered a classic piece it's it's entitled uh, <laughs> after decoding then what and uh, mm -hmm. it's a short piece, but it really, uh, really opened my eyes to the importance of, you know, taking that next step beyond beyond phonics. You know, mm -hmm. decoding is important, but then you have to read, you know, read those words fluently and meaningfully, I guess I should add as well, to mm -hmm. become a good reader. So I think the problem that we see and what Emily Hansen, Hanford was picking up on, but maybe didn't and and later i have to say i listened to her follow-up um podcasts mm -hmm. like a there's a couple that come after the main six and she does comment on um sort of the the critique that she received and you know acknowledged the the th kind of feedback that she got that's similar to what you're saying right yeah um, i actually wrote to her and i said you know oh. when she first started writing about this and i said yeah emily I, I'm, I'm i'm with you we need to be more systematic and intentional in our phonics instruction. But I also said, have you ever heard of this thing called reading fluency? And so I'm glad to hear that, uh, yeah, she's acknowledging that, uh, you know, we, reading is, is, is pretty, a pretty complex uh, uh, activity or teaching it is for sure. Yeah, I'm really hoping one day she'll she'll talk to the assessment people too. Like, Oh, that'd be great, yeah. Yeah, yeah like just the, the misdiagnosis of dyslexia and you know all of that that's come out in scientific america article i think that yeah. kind of stuff would be good to but well, anyway you should, you should invite her i will try she um yes. she's a very very busy person i know um, <laughs> and the the other thing that came to mind was that we feel you know when that or i often see that people are just skipping to the next step without assessment to show that the kid is ready for that next step. So in other words, they're pushing them through a fluency to improve their fluency by sight word reading, but they're not make without making sure that the kid is ready for that. 
Right. You know, and even even some people that are testing kids, like we were talking about in a couple of our discussions, is that kids are giving people are giving the gort when the kids can't even decode. You know, like and the kid mm -hmm. will make up the whole story and get a great rate, you know, score. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> have a terrible accuracy score and still get an overall, you know, not below average score or something. You know, like right, right, right. Yeah. right. But I just, I just feel like, you know, what, what I, what we're hoping to see is that people will make decisions about whether or not a kid's, you know, ready for a, a certain kind of um, intentional instruction to, to help improve a certain skill area of reading, mm -hmm. that those decisions are based on the assessments that are continuously gathering. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. True. Mm-hmm. We had just talked to Dr. Fuchs and Dr. Fuchs, so they're on mm -hmm. my mind. And I was mentioning to her that you know one of the one of the quotes that she has in one of her one of the chapters of the mm -hmm. CBM books is that uh, CBM sensitized professional uh, sensitized people to just sort of the need for intervention. So there are there examples you can share with us for certain assessments that sort of sensitized you for yeah. the, the way we need to change how we teach sure. reading. Yeah, uh, I agree with uh, Lynn and, and her husband. The way I would put it is that it, you know, something like uh, the CBMs make us better observers of children. It's not just a matter of giving them a silent reading test where they fill in the bubbles. You actually have to sit and watch the children read and, and and that develops that sensitivity to you know what what is a good reader what is a child who needs some 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 help in whatever area it might be the uh, example that comes to my mind is is using a rubric with my colleague Jerry Zutel several years ago we called we created a rubric called the multi-dimensional fluency rubric that's a mouthful. <laughs> you can actually find it for free on my website if you're interested. My website is uh, timrosinski.com, and I think you're going to mention that perhaps a little bit later. But it's basically a rubric broken up into four competencies. What are they? Volume and expression is one, phrasing, pacing, uh, and I don't have it in front of me right now, so I can't remember the fourth one. But anyways, the idea is that we listen to children read and we rate them on these various areas. Do they read with, oh, smoothness is the fourth one. Do they read with uh, uh, appropriate pacing? Are they good in phrasing? Because that's a big part of, you know, fluency. Fluent readers read in chunks, but uh, less fluent readers read word by word. And so you rate them in each of these dimensions on a one to four scale highest score then would be a 16, you know, four in each of the four categories and the lowest score would be a four. What we have found is that number one, usually scores under 10 or total scores less than 10 is an indication that prosody, especially though that expressive, expressive component fluency needs, uh, needs some work. Uh, children need some work in that, that area. But also what, what's nice about this particular rubric is that it gives some direction on where you want to work on. If you have a child who reads uh, orally in a whisper voice or uh, lacks expression, well, that's something we can work on with the child. If pacing is the problem, then that's something we can work on with the students. So it actually gives some, you know, some broad diagnostic direction in, in, um, in terms of what, what the child actually needs. 
And over the last uh, dozen or so years, you know, some people say, well, rubrics, that's qualitative, but actually it has been found to be a reliable and valid measure. We've kind of uh, did predictive validity studies where we, to what, what extent is, uh, is this rubric correlated with other measures of reading fluency? And it, it tends to be pretty, pretty high. But again, you know, the thing is that when teachers do this, they're developing an, uh, that internal awareness of, you know, what constitutes fluency? What do I need to be aware of when I listen to my children read? And, you know, it's what's really cool is, well, first of all, I was just talking to a teacher in Canada. She translated the rubric into French. She just, she can't wait to use it with her own students. But the other thing is I've had some teacher friends who've taken that rubric and they made a kid-friendly version of it. They wrote it in language that was, you know, children could easily understand. And then they put it on a chart and they put it in the classroom so that children can begin to diagnose, if you will, their own reading uh, fluency. And, you know, isn't, isn't that what we want? We want children themselves to become that metacognitively aware of, uh, you know, what makes a good reader what makes a fluent reader. So that one example that I can share with you that it seems to have developed a life on, on its own uh, uh, there, and it certainly has changed me. Uh, I'm a better observer of kids reading as a result of that rubric. It gives me a direction for what I want to listen to as they read. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes we think we have to do some complicated assessments, but some things like a rubric can really give us a lot of good information yeah. And you don't have to waste time in a whole long assessment. Right. And and at the very least, it could be a screener, you know, mm -hmm. listen to kids read. And, you know, out of the 20 kids I'm working with, maybe only two need further analysis, further, further testing. The other 18, we can say, yeah, they're, they're, they're well on their way to, you know, developing fluency. So, you know, no need to uh, do anything uh, beyond that uh, for, for now. So, you know, it, it's, we, we need to trust ourselves. I think one of the things we need to do in our teacher training is help our teachers to become better observers for kids being in, you know, even in, even classroom teachers develop that diagnostic, that the framework in their heads that they, they can begin to uh, use to find out the needs of their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the observations is that there are a lot of commute computer yeah. test assessments or computer-based right. things and that sort of is taking the teacher away from being observant of the kids reading exactly and the, the I, teacher gets a report that has a bunch of red green and yellow right right and yeah well i mean that's helpful i'm not saying it's not but you know it it doesn't really give you that deep understanding of what what needs to be done Mm -hmm. I just remember Mark Shin, when I interviewed him, he was like, at the end of it, he was like, just listen to kids read, please just listen to kids read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, the key, and the thing is, you know, we do have some norms that we can use to, you know, you know, listening to kids read is qualitative, but we have norms that uh, we can use to quantify uh, what we're observing, you know, we know that you, the CBM norms, you know, I, I've, I have my own, but I really, really use the Hasbrook and Tyndall's ones right now, but we also know, you know, uh, accuracy, you know, kids reading a grade level passage, we should expect uh, them to read around 94 to 95% of the words accurately to be considered a, 
you know, a typically developing uh, student. So th- there, it's it's not simply listening, but you know, th- there's ways of actually making it a little bit more uh, precise as to what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I changed the pen from your website. I had the website, your website, up there. So, oh, um, okay, anyone- good. If anyone wants to look, listen to the replay, they can get to the pin uh, later on if they still want the pin of the uh, website. But now I changed the pin to your three-minute reading assessment um, from Scholastic. Okay. And because that has the rubric in it. But meanwhile, right. Lori Melton, who is a big science of reading fan <laughs> uh, and a dyslexia therapist, uh, she provided me with your a copy of your rubric, a link to it. So I'm going to oh, put good. that up there. All right. And so next we're going to go on to talk, to talk about your book. The It's called Artfully Teaching the Science of Reading. And I have it here with me. And it is recently published. Right, I forgot to look at the year. Yeah. I think it was last year or, or 2022. 2022. Yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of people who don't know much about your book, you know, um, who maybe are like have lis- listened to Emily Hamford and they might think, oh, this sort of mm-hmm. art of of teaching reading kind of makes them think of the past where we kind of ignored the science. And and I think you would say that the science of reading is only just the beginning that we need, don't need like we shouldn't stop there. Um, can you give us some examples of how someone would use the science of teaching reading in an artful manner. I really like the example that you gave about all the different ways you use sort of the Greek roots and, and all mm-hmm. that. So just if you could kind of touch on that. Sure. So no, I'd love to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, you know, well, first of all, when I use the, we use the word art, it's not synonymous with whole language. I know that, you know, people tend to think of uh, whole language more as, um, I don't know what the correct word is, but we wanted to start with the science, especially we started with, uh, you know, the National Reading Panel and their five pillars. And what we tried to do was take those and write about how those could be taught in ways that are, well, <laughs> artful as well as scientific. There, we, we began with the very principles that artful instruction should be authentic. It should reflect perhaps the things that we do outside the classroom it should be and it, it should also be what we call aesthetic has the ability to not only be you know, educating the head but also to touch the heart i love that heart that you have in the uh, in in your um, in, in your logo for the diagnosticians uh, group so uh, you, those were some of the principles we we, we started with and I'll, I'll give you a couple examples here for sure number one phonological awareness um you know, we know how important that is. What we have learned, you know, one of the best ways of developing phonological awareness is with nursery rhymes. You know, we, if you think about it, basically they're plays with sounds. When kids go diddle, diddle, dumpling, dickery, dickery, dare, and so on. And there's actually research that shows that kids who know their nursery rhymes are more likely to have higher levels of phonological phonemic awareness and more likely to be better readers as they grow older. Yet, what we know is that many of our children enter into kindergarten, first grade, they don't know their nursery rhymes. You know, this is, we have well-meaning parents who, you know, rather put their child through baby Einstein or something like that, when something as simple as a nursery rhyme could make such a difference. I've known some people who argue the reason why nursery rhymes exist was, was 
simply that to develop that awareness of the sounds of our language that are so critical. So that's an example. Another one, word recognition, whether it's phonics or spelling. To me, they're they're the same thing. Both sides of the coin, two, two different sides of the same coin. Even vocabulary. How do we teach that? Well, again, they, you know, there, I'm not, there are many ways that are out there. But I came across an article in 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 a scientific journal uh, by Bruce McCandless, Isabel Beck, uh, scientific studies of reading. And it, what what they talked what the what the study was about was an intervention study that uh, used a intervention they called word building. Basically, it's word chains. If you're familiar with word chains. Uh, you know, we, we direct children to go from one word to the next by changing a letter at a time or a sound, at, either at the beginning, middle, or end of the word. So, you know, we start with the word cat. What I want you to do is go from cat to can. Where does the sound change? It's at the end. And uh, what letter represents the end sound? Is, it's the end. And then we go from can to how about pan and so on. Anyways, what they found in this intervention study was that these were, I think it was uh, first graders that they were looking at who were struggling. And what they found was doing this on a regular basis, these children improved in phonological awareness, word decoding, and comprehension, which was kind of amazing when compared uh, with kids in an alternative intervention. Uh, And that just makes sense. You know, if you can decode the words, you're more likely to understand what it is that you read. Well, I took that idea and I said, Oh, that's pretty clever. Can we make a game out of it? <laughs> because how many of us play games as adults that are word games, whether it's Wordle or Words with Friends or, you know, Wheel of Fortune and so on. So what I did was I I, I changed the name of it. To, I call them word ladders. Maybe perhaps some of you guys out there might know. Uh, there's actually several books that have been, been written. Uh, and what I did was I made the first in these word ladders, these word chains, the first and last words are somehow connected uh, there. So I just actually made one today. I'm giving a talk next week in, uh, in England. And so my word ladder begins with the word great. And then I changed the let, uh, and then we go through a series of let, uh, words, changing one or two letters at a time. And the last word is Britain. So great Britain go together. And it's not really a game, but it has a game-like feel to it, much like a, perhaps a crossword puzzle. And what we found is that, you know, it's based on the research that is, is out there. And, you know, all you have to do is perhaps is look at some of the uh, the reviews on Amazon where, you know, parents and teachers are saying, my kids love the, doing these kinds of things. But so it's artful in that way, in, in that it's authentic, it's motivating for our kids, but it's also based on science at the same time uh, there. And again, the, you know, I, I think about all those games. My family, every time we get together, you know, we get out the Scrabble board and we play Scrabble for an hour or two and we enjoy it. And what we find is, uh, and I'm sure this is true for everybody who's listening, if you play games like that over a regular basis, you get better at it. And I like to say, you know, we have a special name for when you get better at something. It's called learning. And so I'm not I'm saying that this is a complete phonics program, but what I'm suggesting is that this could be a great complement to an already existing uh, program out there. You, you mentioned the uh, Latin and Greek roots. I took Latin in high school, and, and I still remember, you know, to this day, I would make connections between English words and the Latin roots that I had learned back in my high school days. Well, and, and I'm I'm a big advocate of morphology using, you know, these word parts that have meaning. 
one of the things that we developed was a uh, an activity called be Shakespeare. One of the things we know is that besides writing plays and poetry and so on, uh, Shakespeare made up words. I think it's been estimated that approximately 10% of all the words Shakespeare ever used, he made up. They don't exist before Shakespeare. And if you look closely, most of those words are compounds, words like bedroom, green-eyed, metamorphosis, and so on. Well, if Shakespeare can do it, that's a pretty good guy to, uh, to emulate. And so, you know, once we teach children a, a number of these word roots, they can create their own words, much like Shakespeare did. One of my favorite that I often give in my talks is, is this word here. It was actually invented by one of our students. The word was autophile, A-U-T-O-P-H-I-L-E. I need to, I'll tell you in advance that file or fill means love. So like uh, philosophers love wisdom, philanthropists love people. So this kid actually came in and it was a riddle. He said, if you're a, an autophile, what would you most likely have in your pocket? A set of car keys, a, a mirror, um, or a wallet full of money? And of course, all the students uh, said, oh, autophile, somebody who loves autos, so he must have car keys. <laughs> and I started with this kid said, wrong, auto has another meaning. And it means self, like an autobiography, autograph, autonomy, and so on. So an uh, autophile is somebody who's in love with themselves. So they'd be walking around with a mirror. Uh, I thought that was pretty clever. And, and you know, the, the children just have a ball doing that, trying to, you know, uh, outwit each other with these words that they create. But, you know, again, you strip away the, the fun, the art, and what you have is science. You know, teaching morphology is so important for developing uh, for developing uh, vocabulary with our students. So I, I could go on and on with, with, with these, but uh, I'm not trying to say that what I'm, what I'm offering in this book is a complete curriculum, but what, I'm, what we're trying to offer is a change of mindset that it, you know, teaching reading is not just a science uh, and it's not just an art. It's, a bo it's both. And you know, we need to find ways and empower our teachers and I should say our diagnosticians to find creative ways of, you know, not only teaching, but also understanding what's going on with the children that, that we work with. You know, Mark uh, Seidenberg, reading at the speed of light, or reading at the speed of sight, you know, he's been known to say that, yes, we, we have a good handle of the science of reading, but we don't have a good handle on the science of teaching reading. You know, that those are two separate things, you know, and uh, hopefully that this book, it's not a terribly long book, uh, the intention of the book is is to, you know, help develop that awareness that we are all artists out there and, as well as scientists. And we need to empower ourselves to, to uh, look for those ways that are engaging and artful and scientific at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you when you brought up that we have to really look at the way we teach reading, yeah. it made me think of a debate that I came across in our field is that I didn't know that some people are adamantly um, saying that regular, you know, general classroom teachers are not equipped enough to be teachers of reading. And I find that just um, surprising because how many of the, you know, we can't, we can't do, you know, like a whole Orton Gillingham program with you know five kids in a group for every single kid in yeah. elementary school we can't fund you know just like it's not 
not fundable. It's right. just, and then to get all that training for the teachers, why can't we just teach them, you know, train teachers correctly in the first place? Is what I'm yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I remember my first year as a teacher, I felt completely incompetent. You know, it, it took a, a year or two. I feel sorry for those children my first year of teaching. But fortunately, I had colleagues who were very helpful, you know, get me going. I had curricular material that was was helpful as well. But we need to realize that, you know, learning to teach reading is an ongoing process. You just don't get your bachelor's degree and say, you know, I'm a fin finished product. It, it's we need to, what you're doing here with, you know, with with these uh, series of interviews. I think it's a great way of developing that uh, ongoing mastery of our craft, just as we say there is no settled science science is always evolving and the same thing is true about our ability to be teachers constantly uh, is is evolving i am now retired i might say by the way <laughs> so i'm a professor emeritus but i can tell you that my last year of teaching was probably my best year ever because i evolved and i wanted to i uh, i read i checked with my colleagues i got feedback from my students throughout my career and I think every year I became a slightly better teacher. That's what we want. You know, it's, 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 it's an ongoing process that perhaps never ends. Mm -hmm. Right. I was, and too, when you're ta talking about sort of the strategies that bring the art, I was thinking of one that stood out to me was when the kinder, I guess there were some kindergarten kids who were learning some science words and just finding ways because teaching kids to decode words they've never seen before mm -hmm. could be, you know, a useful, but we'd have to make sure that we're not then making these authentic, inauthentic drills or whatever for right. kids. But then finding the, like you were saying that some of these Greek word roots are actually nonsense words for kids. Or oh yeah, some, if we don't teach them. Right. Right. So, so they, if you, if the kids could learn the roots, then they could, you know, that's a way to, to introduce a sort of a nonsense word. Right. And, and we do that already. You know, a lot of our prefixes, you know, are, have, are meaningful, but we can go well beyond that. that there, there are um, a whole host of, uh, it's been estimated that, like you mentioned science, I've been told that upwards of 90% of our academic words or science words are derived from Latin and Greek word roots. And so you're not just teaching vocabulary, you're teaching science and uh, social studies and mathematics when you when you help kids uh, understand what these words mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I think of all the kids in high school that are, you know, struggling uh, because they're, they're not proficient readers and then they're trying to take college entry exams and yep. not getting good scores and then you right. think about opportunities for uh you know social justice the yeah, you know yeah, just for sure. all these things are built up and really important yeah can i tell you about a study we did a couple of years ago yes absolutely uh with college freshmen at the university what we did was we did a a cbm <laughs> we got these <laughs> these kids there and we you know uh, we had them read a one minute passage i think it was at a 12th grade level and you know we did their oral reading fluency and then what we did was we correlated it against their college entrance exam and we found a significant correlation between the two kids the students who read more automatically 
tended to be you know, higher scores on the, uh, I think it was the ACT test that they took. And, you know, I think when we were talking earlier, when you just brought it up about secondary students, even in the high school, even in the college, this is something pretty important uh, here. I think it was, uh, well, another study we did with some, uh, one of our local high schools, I, th I think it was eighth graders, actually, kids who were going into high school. We did an assessment. We gave them an eighth, I think seventh or eighth grade passage to read. And again, we did a C CBM and we compared their performance against, again, um, an earlier version of the Hasbrook and Tyndall norms uh, goes all the way up to eighth grade. And what we found was that th this was an urban school. Over 50% of the kids were well below. They were at what you consider, the, uh, I think it was about the 25th percentile on, on the Hasbrook and Tyndall norms. And you got to ask yourself, you know, these kids are not doing well. They're not performing well. They're not comprehending well. But it's not they don't have the ability to comprehend. It's that, that they have difficulty, you know, reading those words accurately, uh, knowing what the words mean, you know, these foundational skills fluently uh, there. And, and so what often happens in, in high school, it's been in my experience, though, we test these kids, we find out their comprehension is poor based upon a standardized test. And so you work on comprehension, which is all well and good. But what you need to do is strip away the, you know, peel away, peel away the onion, you know, and find out there's more to it. You know, maybe it is fluency. And what we found was it was big time fluency. Over half the half these kids were performing so poorly, with the 25th percentile or lower there. So, you, you know, fluency is something that needs to be at least monitored. Uh, with our struggling readers all the way uh, into high school, perhaps even beyond. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my questions was, I feel like after kids get to a certain reading level, people mm -hmm. just stop, stop right. monitoring their comprehension. And then, you know, what I learned from Dr. Burns, because um, he looks at a lot of, um, you know, ways of measuring reading, reading uh, fluency. Uh -huh. And he pointed out that kids could read something of that's on their interest level and have a better reading fluency than something that wasn't on their in and wasn't sure. in their real house of background knowledge or interests. I mean, I yeah. know if you ask me to read a book like your book, I can read it in <laughs> pretty quickly. But if you ask me to read, mm -hmm. you know, something a lot that I'm not familiar with, maybe Right. My husband is in pharmacy. You know, if you asked me to read something like that, I would probably be right. really struggling and mm -hmm. it could have the same amount of syllables and mm -hmm. words, length of words and words per sentence and all of that kind of stuff. Readability, right. But just because I don't understand the content or have all the background knowledge, I'm not going to be able to really comprehend as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and, you, and you mentioned that background knowledge, you know, when we've been talking about comprehension, that's been one of the hotter topics you know that it's not just teaching strategies we need kids need to have the background knowledge to comprehend what they what they read but they also need the background knowledge to read fluently what it is that they read as you were just saying if if you don't if you have background knowledge and interest in a particular topic you're going to read it more fluently and of course comprehension is going to follow along with that there's so yeah yeah again it gets back to that whole notion that reading and teaching reading is uh is a pretty complex task uh, you know i uh, often heard that, that louisa Moat's quote i think it is teaching reading is rocket science 
I like to say it's harder <laughs> when you when you think of the fact that every kid, you know, the complexity of reading, uh, all the different competencies, and then you know every child you're working with is different, and then and it's just you, you know, the teacher or the diagnostician working with that child. There, you don't have a complement of scientists that are you know standing behind you. I like to think it's uh, it's more of a challenge uh, than rocket science. So we just really probably should never stop assessing reading just because a kid gets to one. Well, one yeah. level of reading. Right. Especially, you know, with, you know, if we're, if we're good observers, you know, we can select out those kids that, you know, don't need that assessment. But, uh, you know, if we're good observer, we should be able to identify those kids. Yeah, we need to keep track of this child, this student, this adolescent as they're moving from middle school into high school. But yeah, so, yeah, it, it just makes sense, right? Doesn't it? If kids mm -hmm. are struggling, we just can't say, okay, you've, you've left middle, uh, you've, you've left uh, elementary school. Now, you know, you're pretty much on your own. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. We have well, too many kids who don't, as you mentioned, social, the social justice issue. Right. Um, it, it, if we don't help them and they're still having difficulty in, in middle school and high school, then, you know, we, we know where that's leading right. and, it's, it's, and it's not good. Right. So I think one of the things, the last questions I want to ask you before I open up to the, to the um, other people in the room is just, can you give us a brief, a few pointers or, or whatever to, to um, show that a teacher has set up their classroom in a way that's conducive? What kinds of like routines or just regular practices can we do to make sure that ki kids are being assessed um, as they're learning to read? and yeah. sort of caught in that like i mean we're looking at rti strategies and that sort of thing but there's people say it's just rti is too complicated what are some simple things yeah. that we can do well well first of all i i i think we over over assess kids i've seen classrooms where you know those five or six kids who are struggling they get uh, tested every week and even though it might be a five minute assessment you know that's um that's a big chunk of time in a classroom. In fact, part of the reason I wrote that book 20 years ago, the three minute reading assessments was that notion that, you know, time given to testing is time taken away from teaching. And we said, is, is there simple ways that we can assess kids? You know, and what we tried to do was create this, these passages that kids could read for a minute. And, and with that passage reading, you could check their word recognition, their fluency, their vocabulary, their comprehension. Now, I'm not saying that this is the greatest test in the world, but it, it, it's, it's good in the terms of it being a quick screener. So the first thing I would say was be, let's, you know, cut back on the testing. If you test every week, kids, you know, you don't know if there's, if any, if there's any changes due to, uh, you know, simply the child having a bad day, some measurement error, whatever. But if you do ever do it, you know, every perhaps six weeks or so, then you're, you could be pretty well assured that, it, you know, any changes are due to the instruction that's given to the students there. I think AI is going to have a big uh, piece in when it comes to assessment. I was just reading, reviewing an article that came out of Turkey where they're looking at the extent to which voice recognition and the use of AI can um, assess children's oral reading. And they found that it does a pretty darn good job when it, uh, when, and what they did was they compared it with, you know, experts, um, diagnosticians doing the same thing. And they found like a 95% agreement between the two 
So that, that's still coming down the road, but uh, I think that could be a real game changer when it comes to doing this, uh, you know, regular assessments of, of, of kids uh, there. But uh, yeah, when you're, when you got 23, 24 kids in a classroom, there just is not enough time to you know, check everybody. Uh, but if you can find ways of doing it uh, quickly, I think that could be, be, be of help. So my, my, I guess my first thing and perhaps my biggest is, is just be find ways of making it quick, making it uh, not overly complex for both students and teachers. And, you know, one of the things I liked about that three minute reading assessment was teachers have told me not only is it quick, but it is easily explainable to parents. So when you sit down with parents and you try and tell them, okay, here's how they're doing with word recognition. Here's their fluency uh, in terms of words correct per minute. Here's their fluency on the rubric. Parents understood it. And, and of course, it led to things that parents could do at home to help their children, you know, uh, improve. We, that's the other big piece of the puzzle. How, how can we get parents uh, to support their, their children? I think most parents want to. In many cases, they, they, they just don't know what to do. You know, the, the typical thing is, you know, have your kids read or, you know, read to your children, uh, which is terrific. But there, there are other things that we can do. For example, uh, Keith Topping did some work on paired reading. He found that, I'm getting off topic here, I'm sorry, but uh, parents who are trained to sit, simply sit down and read with their children simultaneously the same text, you know, the, the children are being supported by listening to their parent read for 10 minutes, 10 minutes a day, five days a week, he found that they would accelerate their progress, not only in fluency, but also in comprehension by a factor of, I, I believe it was two to three. In other words, children who previously were making a half month's progress in reading for a month's worth of school would now begin to make one month to one and a half months progress for every month's worth of instruction simply by their parents sitting next to their child side by side and reading out loud together for 10 minutes. It's pretty remarkable. And we, in our reading clinic, that's, that's something that we, we, uh, we do a little training for parents and something we ask parents to do. And we found very similar results, it's simple, easy to do, and yet can be quite effective and based on science. Yeah. And even, I mean, even with the dibbles or those kinds of CBMs, mm -hmm. I find like that people want to give the whole thing. And yeah. I'm like, why don't you know, you know where that kid is working. Why don't you just pick the right, exactly. you know, if, if they're doing letter reading fluency, why do you, why do you want to give the word reading fluency or the, right. or, or the, um, you know, the right. oral reading fluency is, is not a, there's no use in it. Just give the one you're working on. It's a minute and you're done. And then, you know, when they're at, right. you know, they're reading, at, you know, doing that fluently, then you can go on to the next one, but knowing when to right. you know, use what tool, I think that's the challenge. Yeah. You're just mm -hmm. using time that could have been used in other ways, mm -hmm. uh, more productively. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, we say, you know, kids are in school for six hours a day. You think that's a lot of time, but um, we need to use it very judiciously mm -hmm. yeah, with our kids. All right. Well, uh, I know that a couple people just would love to say hi and ask, maybe ask a question. So I'm just going to invite okay. people to the stage and okay. let's see who. It's getting late in the day here, but yeah, so yeah. Uh, got a few more. My minutes. brain is kind of fried. I understand you're an hour later to this too. Yeah. All right. Anybody got any questions real quick? Lori's just sharing. Oh, she, Lori's got a question. Um, she says, you only consider the issue 
to be fluency weakness if decoding is intact. If decoding is not intact, the poor fluency is really weak foundation. Is it really a weak foundation in of decoding? Right. Yeah. That that's why you know. In our, I'll go back to my three minute reading assessment. If you have a, a student who's reading, you know, a passage, and you know the word recognition is eighty percent, eighty five percent. Fluency is not the issue. It's we, you know, these kids need need uh, work in when we're decoding because uh, that's what's that's what's keeping the that's what may, what's making the the fluency look uh, look poor. So yeah, we, we need to think about you know that in term. Uh, I often say we can teach teach fluency, develop fluency, and and word recognition at the same time. But again, we need to peel away that onion too when we're doing assessment diagnosis. <laughs> diagnosis uh, with, with our kids. Why are they reading so slowly? And as Lori mentioned, there's a good chance, especially with younger readers, that they're having trouble with uh, the coding issue. And Candace? My question is, if you have a student who you know it's not related to, to decoding and their fluency is, is poor, prosody is, you know, doesn't have that nice natural language when they speak. Right. And you don't want to diagnose the kid with a disability such as dyslexia because you know they've already got those decoding skills down mm-hmm. i'm having a hard time like trying to i guess basically identify the kid correctly is it you know dyslexia or is it uh, a learning disability and reading fluency and i just wanted to hear what you your thoughts on that yeah I know, uh, that's a loaded question sorry <laughs> no yeah i guess it, it, to, to some extent it, it depends upon you know how how you define dyslexia, you know, I, I, I guess the conventional dis, uh, definition is, um, you know, difficulty with uh, word decoding there. So uh, if that's the case, then yeah, you, you would not qualify that child as dyslexic or needing dyslexia services. But, you know, I, there's, there's no reason to say you know, they're having profound reading difficulty, maybe have a different nomenclature for that with a focus on, on, on fluency. Uh, for that child. And, you know, that whole different set of recommendations would come out of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would tend to move away. From, I, I don't know, my whole notion about dyslexia has kind of evolved over the years. And I just kind of think of it as a profound reading difficulty. And I, I know that we, we know that there are certain characteristics of dyslexia that define children who are dyslexics. But a reading difficulty is reading difficulty. And we need to work on the area that uh, that the student is having difficulty in. Uh, that's why, of course, you guys as diagnosticians, you're trying to find what that area is and uh, point uh, instruction uh, to remediate that area. So, um, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to get people to focus on, on not so much on the diagnosis, like what are we calling it, but mm-hmm. what are we what are the recommendations we're making for it and how can we get, drive right. the instruction? So. Yeah. Well, the problem is in Texas, if they do qualify, they're automatically having to uh, benefit from an evidence-based dyslexia program. And a lot of those evidence-based dyslexia oh. programs are heavily focused on, phonics. you know, just doing, yeah, doing the phonics. And so I'm in yeah. a tough spot where I don't want to put a student stuck in a program for three years on decoding strategies when she just needs help with uh, fluency. Yeah, that's a great point. So, yeah, if you know that identifying a child as dyslexic 
is going to put you know put them in a particular program that you don't think is going to work for them then it would make you know, a lot of sense to simply you know not uh, identify them as dyslexic but just say profound reading difficulty in the area of, uh, in the area of reading fluency or caused by reading lack of fluency yeah or also work with our dyslexia if we really do feel like it is you know because of dyslexia then work with our with our mm -hmm. districts not to just have one reading program for kids with dyslexia i'm sure kids with dyslexia have a diaspora of you know skills yeah. too and so we need to like make sure we have uh, programs and options mm -hmm. and training to have teachers trained so that they can use the right programs and right uh, materials for the right kids right but i we're having this a conversation in ohio also where if kids are identified you know with a certain lack of better term disability the state or experts at the state level have identified certain programs that are to be used we can't trust i don't i don't like it because it's it, it's to me it says we can't trust teachers uh to make good decisions right and, I, and that's I wish what it was the more debate flexible. Yeah. that's the debate that i was telling you about that i've heard oh and yeah then, and then too like um just these programs you know we could train the teachers to to teach to incorporate some of the aspects right. of some of these programs but an yeah. intensification of instruction should be intensification of a good core instruction but when the core instruction isn't very good then we pull them out of that class and put them in some program but really right. it should be core, good core instruction should be our first aim yes. of achievement yeah exactly agree with yeah. you all right well all right. we'll let you get to your happy hour <laughs> okay yeah. nazi it's thank been a delight so thank you for uh, allowing here. me to be part of this and it's let me say whoever's still online here thank you for all that you do i can't think of a more important job that anybody can do than helping children become uh good readers so thank you thanks to all Absolutely. of you for your hard work thanks. that is the goal all yeah. right thanks all so right. much you saw talk to bye. you later i'm going to close the room bye-bye okay bye nazi